We'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start that all over again. <laughs> so, yes, I'll start again. Uh, my name is Israel. It's a pleasure to be here to preach um, this Sunday. Uh, we're going to say a short word of prayer um, before we start. Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our hearts that we may believe. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, I'm sure as you've heard the scripture reading uh, you might have had some gut-level reaction of anxiety or curiosity. I wonder what is going to be said about this passage this Sunday. Uh, there possibly is a level of uh, low-resonance anger, wondering, oh, this is another take or Christian take on sex and sexuality that's going to be um, uh, psychologically harmful or um, religiously controlling. Um, or maybe you feel shame. You, you wonder, oh, I, I, I know and I'm deeply aware of my issues with sex and sexuality, my struggles with um, sex and sexuality, and so I, I, there's a level of uncomfortability with addressing this topic. Um, it is a heavy topic, and it's a heavy topic because it's an unavoidable topic. It pervades so much of our society, so much of our lives, and so it's understandable that there's uh, anger or shame or, or curiosity and concern just about how we think about um, lust, divorce, marriage, and, and so on. Um, and what I want to say is, as we go through this text, could we just take Jesus Christ's words on his own terms? Um, to step back for a bit and be aware of our preconceptions, be aware of what we are experiencing or feeling and considering when we come to this text, and just try to distinguish that from what Jesus Christ is saying, so that we can actually hear the wisdom that he has to say on this matter. Because it is unavoidable, and it is pervasive, and so we do need Jesus' words of wisdom to us on the topic of sex and sexuality. Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein is a German philosopher, and he has this quote where he says, 
tell me how you are searching, and I will tell you what you're searching for. Tell me how you're searching, and I will tell you what you are searching for. Jesus Christ takes up um, Wittgenstein's request for us and answers it in a way that we don't even realize um, we're searching. Jesus Christ is going to show us how our search for sex and sexuality actually reveals something more profound. Um, and it isn't what we think it is. So the three things we're going to see in this passage are, first of all, the problem of lust, secondly, the integrity of marriage, and third, the healing of our perversion. Number one, the problem of lust. In Matthew 5, uh, 27, we read, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the context here is that in the time that Jesus is speaking, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees who have, I guess, wrongly assumed that they've kept this commandment. You know, I'm married, is what they're saying, and I haven't slept with another man's woman. I haven't slept with another woman. Um, and so I'm good. I can tick that commandment off the 10. And Jesus Christ says, actually, look again. No, but this time, look at your heart. You haven't kept this commandment. And by the way, when Jesus Christ says that adultery happens at the heart before it happens in the bed, he's not talking about um, appreciation for beauty. He's not saying that um, you can't appreciate the beauty um, in another person. He's not even saying or talking about the hormonal, uh, neurological, chemical drive that we experience as human beings. Jesus Christ is not talking about the surge of chemicals that flood through our bodies at the site of sexual exposure. Um, if you don't believe me, I mean, just turn to the book of Song of Songs. You see in the Song of Songs in the Old Testament this uh, unashamed description and appreciation for sexual beauty. Uh, there's a commentator um, by the name of Richard Hess, in his commentary on the Song of Songs, the first sentence in his commentary is, the Song of Songs is an adult book. The Song of Songs is an adult book. It is not it's not a shame that appreciating beauty or appreciating the sexual beauty in other people. So Jesus Christ is not saying that you cannot appreciate beauty or even saying that the hormonal, chemical, neurological experiences of the human are wrong. Jesus Christ is specifically talking about the looking upon, the intentful look upon a woman for the purposes of lusting. It is essentially to commit the act of adultery to the furthest extent possible without having to do it physically is what Jesus Christ is speaking about. Now, of course, it goes without saying that when Jesus Christ talks about a man looking at a woman with lust, he's also speaking generically about all of us. So it applies to women, and it applies to those who may have uh, different sexual orientations. He's speaking to all of us specifically about our experiences of lust and, and our desire for sex, um, and pointing to what is going on deeper within our hearts. Jesus Christ says, lust is a selfishness that looks at the other person for the purposes of sexual gratification, that essentially turns the other into an object, a means to an end, turns the other into a commodity that will fill our desires. Um, if the 1960s are titled or known as the, the year of uh, the sexual revolution, uh, many social critics and cultural critics have said that the 2010s, 2010 to 2020 roughly, is the year or the end of sex. 
the end of sex. And what they mean by that is that um, in the last 10 years, people have had less sex than in the previous 25 years. Now, the main reason is not um, some sort of like moral shift in our culture's view of sex, but the main reason actually is pornography. And more specifically, pornography in social media. That we have, have a problem in our culture, a problem of sexual gratification and objectification. Um, Immanuel Kant describes this well when he writes in his lectures on ethics. The desire which a man has for a woman is not directed towards her because she's a human being, but because she's a woman. That she is a human being is of no concern to the man. Only her sex is the object of his desires. This is the description of lust. To turn another into an object. That you are a human being is of no concern to me. That you have um, reproductive genitalia that gives me a sense of sexual gratification is all I need. So you are an object of my desires. And the 2010s, the reason we are having less sex than ever before is because we have perpetuated this objectification where we have made ourselves the center of sex and sexuality itself, and our gratification is the only thing that matters. And it isn't just Christians or philosophers saying this. Um, there are two uh, feminist uh, theorists, Catherine McKinnon and, a and Andrea, um, the late Andrea uh, Dworkin, both not Christians, who speak out avidly against the industry of pornography, who speak out against the culture of, object of, of objectification, and say that our culture does have a problem with lust. That we have not just allowed boys and men to think that women can be objects for their sexual gratification, but we have allowed that to pervade every aspect of society. That there are now standards that women feel which are not placed on men when it comes to the way they present themselves in society. That we have a problem with lust is not just a statement that Jesus Christ makes or that Christian preachers present, in sermons, but it's an understanding that even feminist theories say is true. Lust is a deeper problem than we think. Now, how does Jesus Christ say we should address this problem? In verse 29 and 30, Jesus Christ says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, Jesus Christ is not speaking about literal self-mutilation itself. I mean, if he actually was, then he missed the most obvious part of the body to cut off. <laughs> Jesus is not talking about physical, literal self-mutilation. Remember, he just said the problem is in the heart. So cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye doesn't remove your heart your heart is still going to be there and lust will still present itself as a problem. What Jesus Christ is speaking about is radical self-discipline. And let's talk about that, radical self-discipline. What does that look like? I think there are three things just to keep in mind and there's more to be said about radical self-discipline. But I think the first thing is that when Jesus Christ tells us to commit ourselves to radical self-discipline in light of our problem with lust, he's talking about a paradigm shift. Now, this might seem obvious, but I think it goes without saying that he's saying that your problem with lust is, well, your problem. It is not the problem of the person you're looking at. And more specifically for men, it is not for you to start policing what women wear 
or how they present themselves. The problem of lust in your heart, well, is a problem of your lust in your heart. And so the paradigm shift is to start with saying, it is my responsibility to tackle the sin that lies in my heart. But also, it's not just a paradigm shift, we also need partnership. To tackle uh, the problem of lust in our hearts means that we have to do it with other people. While it is our problem and our responsibility, we need to be able to speak to other people and say, this is an issue in my heart, will you help me? That might look like, for most of us, seeking out a counselor to talk about our issue with pornography, for example. Seeking out your pastor and speaking to them about this issue. Talking to a seasoned Christian friend that you can trust so that you can actually work through this issue in your heart and taking the right steps to address it. But thirdly, it is not just that it requires a paradigm shift or a partnership, but it also, for real transformation, means we need the power of the Holy Spirit. It is your responsibility, but it is not by your strength. In Titus 2, uh, we read that the grace of God leads us to say no and teaches us to say no to sin. What Titus is saying there, what Paul is saying to Titus, I should say, is that to change, to say no to sin requires that we depend on the grace of God. We depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying in that instance is, you will not change by your own strength, but even when you fail, there is a home to return to. Even when you go astray, there is a home to return to. So while you might say, you know, Israel, I see the points you've made and I, and I have taken those steps. I'm seeking counseling. I'm talking to um, uh, close friends that I trust to address this and I'm taking the right steps that I see for my particular circumstance, but I still struggle. It is to say, while we are always in recovery, we are in recovery in the presence of God, a God who will always welcome us home when we go astray. And true change happens not by our strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, we see, that the problem of, we see the problem of lust in this passage, but secondly, we see the integrity of marriage. The integrity of marriage. In verse 31, we read, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the context here is slightly different. Uh, in the first passage we read, Jesus Christ is quoting a command from the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandments. But in this passage, he's actually quoting a case law. And a case law is different from a commandment. So Jesus Christ, um, God in, the, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, isn't given a command, but he's responding to a case, as case laws work. Here's a situation that's been presented. And God is given a response and saying, this is what you do in this situation. And what is that? If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Now, the issue that is in the context in which Jesus Christ speaks is that the scribes, Pharisees, the rabbis, uh, have a difference of opinion on how to, to, to interpret the word indecent. Um, and it's actually a school of thought, the rabbi um, Hillel, who, who basically said the word indecent means any reason. They turned it into this subjective indecency. If you feel that there's something indecent in her, then you can divorce her. And so Josephus, Philo, who were first century Jewish historians, uh, philosophers, both attest to this and say that actually men could divorce their wives if they spoiled the dinner. They could divorce their wife if she became indecent in the sense that they found someone who looked better. And Jesus' and Jesus's time saw men divorcing their wives for any reason. 
And so Jesus Christ weighs in on this debate and says, no, actually, you can't divorce your wife for any reason. He goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. So what Jesus Christ is saying is that the for any reason divorce doesn't stick. You cannot um, divorce your wife for any reason. Um, it's actually the case that since marriage, since marriage was designed to be a safe and secure covenant in which you find intimacy, love, and a picture of the gospel, then only the most severe of cases is the, is the context in which divorce can occur. In, in Malachi 2, uh, 16, um, God says, I hate divorce. And when he says, I hate divorce, he, he, he's not saying, you know, I, I hate the fact that you make decisions and choices. But he's saying, I, I hate the ending of marriage because of what marriage points to, because the integrity of marriage is that it points to the faithfulness of God. So whenever a marriage ends, it is always something to be mourned. Now, there's probably a question here at this point. Um, you're wondering, well, it says except for sexual immorality. What about abandonment? What about abuse? And I would broadly say that those do come under this category. As a matter of fact, in, in, later on in the New Testament, Paul speaks about abandonment and divorce. Um, but that's, you know, that's a broader topic that, unfortunately, I won't have enough time to, to go into in depth. But even in instances where divorce is permitted, Jesus Christ is showing us that the integrity of marriage means that divorce is always to be mourned, even when it is permitted. Um, the impact of divorce is not just seen in that it's an ending of what is beautiful, marriage, but that its impact is also hurtful to those surrounding it. So there's a, a book that has really impacted me um, on the topic of divorce, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce by Judith Wallerstein and Sandra Blakesley. They're uh, both professors and, and um, psychologists. They did a 25-year study on the topic of divorce, specifically its impact on children. Um, so they interviewed children over five-year five increments over the span of 25 years to see what the impact of divorce is. And this was irrespective of their religious background. This was irrespective of the reason for the divorce. Um, and they found that the same threads pretty much stay in divorce irrespective of how it happens. So for example, they say, anger doesn't end with divorce. For, for, for those who got divorced because there was this consistent um, fighting and tension in the, in, in the marriage, they show that actually what is needed is a lot, is far deeper than just separating and getting divorced. And that, that anger, in most instances, spills over into the lives of the children and they become the subjects of the anger that was once inflicted on the spouse. They go on to show again that children often become caregivers after a divorce, that they become uh, sort of the, the burden bearers for the emotional stability of their parents. And then they show again that there's a, a diminished capacity in most instances to parents in the instance of divorce. Now, there's many more things they show, but I highlight those three to say divorce is a heavy topic um, because marriage is a serious covenant. And the impact of divorce is not something to be played with, which is why Jesus Christ raises the bar really high and says, scribes and Pharisees, you are wrong. We need to step away from your, for any reason, divorce as though marriage was a trivial covenant. It is not a trivial covenant so we see that the problem of lust 
is that we turn people into objects for the purposes of our sexual gratification. We see the integrity of marriage pointing to the faithfulness of God and such that, meaning that divorce is a serious um, um, act that should be taken only in the most severe of cases and in every case should be mourned. But lastly, we see the healing of our perversion. The healing of our perversion. So if the problem of lust is that we have a, a longing for satisfaction that we think is met in objectifying other people, we actually see in the integrity of marriage the fulfillment of that longing. G.K. Chesterton um, writes um, famously that the man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. You see, the problem of lust is that we are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And the integrity of marriage is that it points to where the longing is ultimately fulfilled. It is fulfilled in the spousal love of Christ. Um, in John chapter 4, when Jesus Christ uh, goes to the, the woman of the well, he asks for um, water, and she says, hey, you're, you're a Jew, I'm, I'm a Samaritan, and um, we shouldn't be talking. We shouldn't be in this context. And Jesus Christ says to her, look, the water I've asked you for, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. So Jesus Christ draws a parallel between water and the desire that we experience for thirst, for water, and draws a parallel between that and the spiritual thirst that resides in our heart. And he does the same thing with lust. He shows us that actually the desire for sex, the human desire for sexual satisfaction, points to a deeper spiritual desire for satisfaction, which can only be fulfilled in the spousal love of Christ. In the Old Testament, um, Hosea is a prophet who God calls to marry a woman of unfaithfulness. And after marrying this woman, she continues to be unfaithful by looking for lovers in multiple places. And then God says to Hosea, you see this marriage you are in? It's a picture of my covenant with my people, that I have been faithful to them, and yet they continue to look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. God's faithfulness to us is depicted in marriage, and that faithfulness is the full and complete satisfaction of our deepest longings. If the real problem of lust is that we are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, then the integrity of marriage is that it points us to the promise of full and complete satisfaction in the spousal love of Jesus Christ, which will never fail us. The faithfulness of God that will never fail us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you um, with a heaviness of heart, recognizing that uh, sex and sexuality, um, lust, divorce are heavy topics. Um, for many of us, there's uh, our reflections of our own struggles with um, sex and sexuality, um, with lust. And we ask that you be with us as we seek radical self-discipline, um, as we seek to be fully satisfied in the spousal love of Christ. We ask that you'd be with us and that we would see your faithfulness to us. And that, that would open for us a new freedom to step away from lust and to really see what marriage ultimately points to. 
the fullness that we find in the faithfulness of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.